Hi, this is Ashley at the Recovery Radio Network, and I need your help. I'm trying to raise money this week to help defray our operating costs. My storage and network costs have skyrocketed recently, and Recovery Radio needs your help. Can you help me? If you can, go to recoveryradio.net and click the donate button. It's just that easy. I appreciate any help you can give, and you should know that your contribution is fully tax-deductible under the law. Stuff here. Hi, my name's Sue. I'm an alcoholic. You guys are a great-looking group, because <laughs> you chuckled and laughed, and that's great. Um, I first want to thank the committee so much for asking me to do this. Um, I was very annoyed with Charlie when he initially asked me, uh, but it was kind of turnabout was fair play. I'd had him do a, a thing up in our end of the world, and so, and I've been taught that I never say no. So I have come now to this point after thinking about it and living with this fact for about eight months that this is a very special privilege, and I feel very touched that I'm the one who gets to be here. Um, I don't think anybody from Western Maryland has ever spoken on this podium before. And so I, I'm here not for myself, but to represent the people of our community out there in the hinterlands. So I have a sobriety date. It's November 22nd, 1988. I have a higher power and I have a sponsor. And on November 21st, 1988, I didn't have any of those things. I was beginning to get a higher power at that point. I, I, I'm billed as Sue A. from Accident, Maryland. And I have to tell you, if you don't know where Accident, Maryland is, you haven't lived, kids. It's a big one. <laughs> you just keep going. You just go west. You get off at exit 14 and take a left. And don't blink. You'll miss it. We have four recovering people in Accident, Maryland. No meetings, but four recovering people. Two of them are here. So you think about it. 50% of our community is here. Is 50% of your community here? We're not doing too bad in Accident, I think. I don't live in Accident, Maryland, though. That's just my address. I live in Biddinger, Maryland. Biddinger, Maryland is even worse. There you don't, you don't even, it's, it's, Nothing. I mean, there's one general store, a church, a taxidermist, and a store for sale. And we have five recovering people in Biddinger, Maryland, and three of them are here. Think of the odds of that one, baby. One of them sitting back thinking, who's the, who's the fifth one? Who's the fifth one? She'll think of it in a minute and go, oh, yeah. Do you love this? Do you just love that? When Charlie asked me to do this, I didn't know that this was the, the theme conference, the conference, the theme of the conference. And, and when I got the first papers on it and I saw that, I just about, I couldn't believe it. I absolutely could not believe this was the theme of this conference. Acceptance is the key. And the rest of the sentence is, acceptance is the key to my relationship with God today. That sentence was written by my good friend Paul Olinger. I was, we were very fortunate in the beginning of our sobriety to hook up with a group of people who travel 
uh, with a sober group, and Paul was on those trips always. And I'm going to talk about him for a minute now because he's very, he was a very important influence in my life, and he's the reason I'm here today. Um, Paul was uh, a, a lovely man who lived exactly what this chapter says, and I, I considered him a spiritual giant and a gentle soul. And I'm going to tell you a little story about him. I was, we were in a, on a trip, and I had the last night we were there, I happened to sit down to dinner, and he was sitting next to me. I normally never sat next to Paul at dinner because everybody wanted to be around him, and I had enough time around him. But he happened to be sitting there that night next to me. And as we sat down, I said, so what are you doing these days now that you aren't on the speaker circuit so much? Because Maxine was failing at the time and not doing very well, and so he was spending more time with her. He said, well, I'm going to the jails. I said, oh, that's really great. I was asked to go to the jails. He said, well, how do you like it? And I said, I don't go. This very sweet, docile man suddenly turned into a tiger, and he turned on me and said, may I ask why not? I said, well, I've got my reasons. He said, go get some food. We're going to talk. <laughs> so I went through all my answers of why not I don't go to the jail. And, I, and, and one of them was I'm not comfortable with I'm not comfortable in that setting. And he said, well, that's just too bad because you're not going to grow and spiritually or change unless you get uncomfortable. Don't you know that when you're in un- uncomfortable is when you have the most change and the most growth? And I, well, there's a thought. Yeah, I knew it, but I didn't think I had to do it, you know, that kind of thing. And we went through the evening, and finally, by the end of the evening, he said, he had talked me into going to the prison, and I, he said, and when you go, he said, be sure and be sure and call me the next day. He always did this little caveat that, you know, I'm going to make you obligate yourself and then report back to me. So be sure and call me the next day. So I came home and put in the paperwork and went and, and went to the prison, and it was a wonderful experience, and I need to turn in that paperwork to the man sitting back there soon and do it again soon. Um, but I couldn't call Paul because he had died about five weeks before. He died on May 19th, the year 2000. And I, um, I remember that evening with him as being a pivotal meeting, evening in my recovery that he told me many things that have stuck with me and have changed how I've done my program since that night. So I owe such a debt of gratitude to him and to these words written in this book. And I love that acceptance is the key to my relationship with God today. Best sentence in the book. Next to, we absolutely insist on enjoying life, in my opinion. But So I, um, I'm going to go with a little history, what it was like. I grew up in Seattle, Washington. I was an only child. My parents, uh, my father was, uh, I don't know, he, was, he worked for an insurance company, you know, just a middle-class guy, and my, my, family, uh, my family drank. And I don't blame anybody for anything, but it sure explains why it took me so long to get it. And we, they, they, they drank. They just, they drank. Everybody drank. We were the kind of family that the big Christmas gifts were bottles of booze and painted bottles. You remember those things? Any of you guys remember those? We have some still. We have some of the bottles left still up, up where we live. And it's, um, <laughs> they're, they're a piece of work. Uh, 
So, the, you know, they drank. Everybody drank. I remember one Christmas sitting down to the, to the dinner table. There were 23 places set, and three people sat down, and the other 20 were either passed out, puking, arguing, or had left. And that was how, how it went. And we were great, you know. We were fine. There was a rule in our family. We don't talk about what goes on outside these doors anywhere, and we didn't, and alcoholism was a secret. When my mom, my mom, um, my mom was a practicing alcoholic, in my opinion, for all of my lifetime. Um, and she lost several babies. I, I was the only child. She had seven pregnancies. Uh, and at one, I re- and none of the other infants survived. And I remember when I was about five years old, she had lost a baby, and they took me, dressed me up in a little coat and a little hat and a little muff. Half these people don't know what muffs are, but anyway. <laughs> and took me to the hospital and plopped me down in front of the hospital and said, wave to your mommy, you can make her well. And they then blessed me as an Al-Anonic. I was, I was told I could fix people, and I was given that blessing, and, that, and I carried it to my, this very day, actually, although I have some recovery these days. And that was, I was off to the races. I went to, I, as far as taking care of people and fixing people, and, and I lived in the, in the drinking, and I... I went to high school. I wasn't one of these people who started drinking in high school. I was miserable. I was fat, ugly, and stupid, and I knew it, and everybody else knew it. I didn't date. I didn't do anything. Oh, I shouldn't even say this. I have to watch what I say up here because of him, the guy over there. Um, I, and I, I, uh, I went to high school to nap. I, I, I napped my way through high school because I never knew when I got home at night what was going to go on. And I, and I just, that was the way it was in life. Um, there was suicide talk, there was drinking, there was furniture throwing, and, and I was miserable. And I was going to my bedroom and I was taking a pen and drawing lines on my arms trying to figure out how to get out of it and how bad it was going to hurt. And about that time I was saved. I literally, I ended up becoming involved in a, in a fundamentalist right-wing religion. And um, I mention that because later on it had, when I came into the rooms, it made, had a huge impact on me later. So I became involved in this religion, and it really saved my life for several years. For five years, that's what I did. And I, I stopped thinking of killing myself, and I was told if I would pray right and well enough, I would get what I needed and wanted. Well... By the time, that was when I was 15, by the time I was 21, things hadn't changed. And I took a little trip over to Europe, and when I got off the airplane, I went straight to the bar. Because I was, had been raised in the state of Washington, they had blue laws and all kinds of laws about drinking. So I went through Europe when I was 20 years old, and I drank my way through. I don't remember very much about it. I do remember, after going to the Hofbrau House, uh, in Munich, that if you wash your hair in ice cold water the next morning, you don't feel a thing. It's fine. You can do that. You, it's great. Didn't mind that. So I, 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 and I, and I used to say when I first came in the rooms, I used to say I didn't have my first drink till I was 21 years old. But that's not true. It wasn't true at all. I, I remember very clearly Christmas Eve, the year I was. Uh, in 1955, and the family decided that I was a problem because I didn't like booze. And so they said, well, we'll give her champagne. She might like that. So they bought a couple bottles of champagne for Christmas Eve, and they gave me the champagne, and I drank them, and I liked them fine, and it was wonderful, and I blacked out. 
that was the end of that. And I blacked out all, I was a blackout drinker, and I thought that's what you were supposed to do. You black out, you drink, you black out. For my 18th birthday, my parents gave me a bottle of scotch to keep in my room because you might need it. And, you know, I was, I opened it and drank it. I thought that's what you did. You take, once the top is off, you get it, you get rid of it so you can get rid of the bottle. And that's, and I, and I started drinking like that in the very beginning. I'm going to go back to Paul for a minute. One of the things Paul told me also is you don't have to tell a big drunkalog because everybody in the room knows more about drinking than you do probably. So I'm not going to go on with this for very long, I can tell you. I've got a time on myself on this one. Um, so that, you know, that's how I lived my life. And sometimes I didn't drink, and when I did drink, I drank uncontrollably. And I drank empty bottles, and I got married, and I moved to New York City, and I had two kids, two little boys, who I absolutely adored, and I still consider being their mother the, one of the greatest privileges on this planet, um, even after all the years of teenageness and everything else. <laughs> um, they, and I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, anyway... I, uh, and, and then we moved to New York City. From New York City, I moved to Washington, D.C., where I lived for 20 years. And that marriage dissolved due to various and sundry things um, and not aided by my drinking, although during those years was probably the least amount of drinking that I did. After I divorced, though, boy, no holds barred. I remember he moved out, and I went to the liquor store. I bought one bottle of everything because we had never had any hard liquor in our house. So one bottle of everything, I had a special place to put it, and when I was putting it in, one of the bottles broke, and I got right in the car, hadn't even put the rest of the bottle, went back to the liquor store to get it because you got to have every bottle of everything in that liquor cabinet. That was also the year that I discovered I could smoke in the shower. <laughs> I hadn't been allowed to smoke in the house, so I said, screw him, I'll smoke anywhere I want. I'd go in the shower. It was great. God. Addictions are really sane, aren't they? Along the way, during my single years, I, I happened to encounter um, the great love of my life, who is still to this very day the great love of my life, even though he doesn't always believe it because of my behavior. But he is the great love of my life, and um, he's sitting right up here in the front in the stripes. And he deserves a little bigger applause than that, I'll tell you. You got it. And we started dating, and we dated, and, and he told me on the sixth date that he was a, an alcoholic, and I said, great. <laughs> and just to be really sure that he was an alcoholic, we dated him for four years. And he was. And so I married him. I remember my therapist saying, what are you doing marrying an alcoholic? He says he's an alcoholic. I said, I know how to handle alcoholism. It's fine. You know, the funniest thing, I don't remember that therapist ever once saying to me, what do you drink? I don't remember her ever saying that. So we got married, and um, we got the bright idea a couple of years into the marriage that we would leave Bethesda and move up to Garrett County. Um, I, I don't know why we did that. It, you know, we had great jobs. We had, I was teaching in Montgomery County schools. He, he had a wonderful job. Uh, we, we had a place up there and we decided we wanted to try rural life. As I look back on it, 
I realize why we did that. But at the time, I didn't know why we did it. We just went. And it was really bad. It was just awful. I spent the first night in the corner crying, saying, Dear God, what am I doing here? Even though I didn't believe in Dear God, but I said it anyway. I was a good foxhole prayer in those days. Um, and eventually, about 18 months into living up there, came what I didn't used to say was a bottom, but somebody said to me once, when a gun is involved, you call it a bottom. So I call it a bottom now. We had this little scene. It was late at night. It was, um, you know, three in the morning, a lot of booze, a lot of the sex thing came in. It, it was just a really insane, nasty evening, and I lost it completely and started, I decided I was going to move out of the bedroom. And I took my clothes upstairs and I took and I took my, the blankets upstairs and I took the pictures off the wall upstairs. And I took the blankets off the bed upstairs. He's in the bed and I'm taking the blankets off the bed. And then I decided to move the furniture upstairs and pick up the piece of furniture and I start up the stairs and the SOB has the nerve to come out and laugh at me. And, and I pitched that dresser at him full bore. Boop! And it went crashing to the floor and broke. And I don't remember how the thing got upstairs. It was upstairs later. And we, um, I went upstairs and I came down the next morning and I knew exactly what I had, what I had become and who I had become. And of course I had become my mom. And I was doing exactly what she did. And I was saying what she did. And I was doing what she did. And I knew where this went. I knew exactly where this went because I had watched it in my life. And my mother died at the age of, she had her first stroke at 58. She died at 60. Of, she stroked out for those three, two years. Um, and it was largely due to her alcoholism and her, her malnutrition and other issues that went on. And I knew where I was going to go. And I woke up the next morning, and I knew what I had done, and I didn't see any way out of it. I, and believe me, this wasn't the first time things had been broken in our house by me. I used to pride myself in breaking wooden spoons. If you hit them just right on the edge of the counter, they ricochet. <laughs> Scares the heck out of everybody in the room. So I, I went um, the next morning. I woke up. I knew what I had done. I knew where it went, and I didn't know. I didn't, there was no out. There was no out. I didn't know about Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't know about anything. I knew about the mental hospital, the state mental hospital up the road here, the finance center, and I figured that's where I belonged and that's where I was going to end up, and I didn't know how I was going to tell my husband I was going to go there, and I didn't want to go there, and I went downstairs, and I opened a cupboard, and we have some shotguns, and I gave some very serious thought to how do you do this, you know, how do you go about this process, and... Um, I found, a, uh, there was, I turned around and there was a padlock, and I, a combination lock I didn't know the lock to, the numbers on, and I slammed that door shut and I put that lock on it and I spun it so I knew I couldn't do it because I, I had thought about my boys and I knew that I couldn't do that to my boys. I just couldn't do it to my kids. Um, and I, then I was really stuck. What was I going to do? I thought about abutments. I would drive down the road and wonder how fast you have to go. And all that crap, you know what it is. And it was, I think it was the bottom, you know? Um, I lived like that for several months. I would, my husband would go to work. I would, I would act like Mary Sunshine when he came home and I would go upstairs and hide in this room. 
And he'd come home and dinner would be on the table and I'd go upstairs and hide in the room and I was trying to figure out how to get out of this thing. And then some circumstances occurred where my husband, and I'm not telling his story, he's sitting right there, but it's so much a part of my story um, that how I got here, because he really is the one who 12-stepped me into these rooms. And I went to um, someone, some people, anyway, he decided to go to treatment and he went to treatment. And when then, then I really had a problem. My husband's in treatment. I'm in Garrett County. I have nobody up there, no friends, no nothing. My kids are gone. I have no job. I have no money. And he's going to find out what he's married to. What am I going to do now? He's going to find out. He's going to know the truth. So I decided, well, if he was going to stop drinking while he was in treatment, then I could stop drinking too. And that... Um, I would give it. I, I would give that a shot for a couple days, um, and that that I would. They, and then, then this treatment center. What a nervy group they were, and some of you guys work in treatment centers. They're a nervy crowd. They, they said, "You're sicker than he is." <laughs> he thinks that's really funny. <laughs> You're sicker than he is. You need Al-Anon, number one, and you need to go to at least three three meetings a week if you want to stay like you are, and four to five if you want to get any better ever. And I think, whew, what, what's this, four to five? I live in Garrett County, Maryland. You know, we have nothing up there. And they, they say, then you go to AA. You'll go to AA and you'll learn to work the steps of this program. I'd go there, I'd call them and whine. Oh my gosh, it was just unbelievable. And I, so I, I called up and I found out where there's an Al Anon meeting in, in Cumberland, Maryland, Seventh day Adventist Church. And I would, um, I, and I went to my first Al Anon meeting and I think it was July 1st, 1988. And I drove around the block, it was a hot summer's night. And go around, and 8 o'clock sharp, I pulled into the parking lot and parked the car, and everybody turned and looked, because it was the Seventh-day Adventist church. They couldn't smoke in a church then, so they're out there smoking. And and I said, is Alan on here? And they said, no, this is AA. And I just I threw myself on the hood of my car and burst into tears. I said, I have to go to Alan on. I said, honey, come on in here. We'll take care of you. So I went into this Alan on meeting. And I listened, and I remember the guy. I remember, every, I remember that meeting as clear as a bell. And I still know some of those people that were at that meeting. Um, I still see them around. I sponsored the daughter of one of those people, and and that's another huge privilege and gift of this program. And I, it, the meeting was on sincerity. I've never heard that topic before. It was on sincerity, and I remember at the end they said, "Do you?" Um, they asked for burning desires, and I raised my hand because I like to talk. And um, I said, I, I had never heard this phrase before, and I said this, this, these words, I sincerely want what you have. So I went to that meeting, and then I started going to um, AA meetings and Al-Anon meetings, and this is what happened. I caught the disease of Al-Anon, or of AA, from, of alcoholism from you guys. I just caught the disease. I first, when I went in, I compared myself out all over the place. I was older. I was, um, I was a 
parent, I was a woman, I was a, hadn't been to jail, I hadn't been to, had, I hadn't had DWIs, why I don't know, I'll never know that one. We used to go to dinner at the Silver Tree Restaurant at Deep Creek Lake, and there was this little tiny single bridge, the single lane bridge that you had to drive over to get home, or you could go around the lake. And when we would go out to dinner, the next morning, I would spend the whole morning trying to figure out how in the hell I got home. Which route did I come? And did I go over that bridge as drunk as I was? Oh, my God. Scared myself to death, I'll tell you that. And I, would, I did that all the time. I drove drunk all the time. But this was back in the 80s so in Garrett County, and you just didn't get caught, I guess, very much. I don't know. I know other people who have been caught, but I didn't get caught. <laughs> So my very first huge, giant gift of the program was that first AA meeting. And what a gift it was. It was just, a, there I was. So I remember calling my husband when he was in treatment. He said, well, how was your Al-Anon meeting? And I said, it was an AA meeting, and it was fabulous. I loved it. And I couldn't figure out why I felt like I belonged. I couldn't figure out why I liked it. I couldn't figure out what was, I just couldn't figure it out. Duh. So I started, I started going to AA and I went, and I, w- I went to, I'm a meeting maker. I go to four to four, three to four meetings a week, every week of my life. Um, and, and I love meetings. I just love meetings. And uh, I'm afraid not to go because someone new might be there. I might get to go talk to someone new or, or someone might come back. That's even better. Ooh, I love it when they come back. And I might get to be there when they come back and say, I've missed you. And so, I, you know, I just, I love going to meetings, and I go to meetings. So we, you know, I started going, and I, you know, the thing that I know is, as I look back and I thought about talking here today, my, my recovery has been filled with enormous gifts. No matter what was happening, no matter what was going on in my life, there is a gift involved. And that's the whole thing that I know, that it was just, and, and, and that I've been allowed to be able to listen to certain people. The thing, you know what bothers me? Who didn't I listen to? Who aren't I listening to? Because maybe I'm missing some stuff I need to hear. So I keep trying to remind myself to listen closer because I might be hearing something really good. So I started going to these meetings, and of course, by now, you know I was a God-hater. I just didn't like that at all, because he hadn't done what I asked. Mom didn't get sober. So that, that killed, that was it for him. He was out, done with him. And I was whining about this one night that first summer in that meeting, and a woman named Fran leaned across the table and pointed her finger at me. She said, who do you think got you here? Well, I knew it wasn't my idea. Believe me, I didn't have that in my high school yearbook. Grow up to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I won't know what I wanted. And I suddenly realized that, that, that there was a God that had taken very good care of me over all those years, that that little girl, when she was hit, wasn't hurt badly. And when stuff happened, she survived. And this, this higher power had been there taking care of me every single day of my life and I had failed to acknowledge it. I recognized that when that woman said that to me. I had a little trouble relating, though, to that higher power. And there was another 
guy in our lives at that time in my life, a young man who had 22, who was 22 years old. He had four years of sobriety. People go out for coffee after the meetings, and I thought you were have to, had to be invited, so I never went to coffee. And I'm sure, you know, they're saying, what's wrong with them? They don't go to, out to coffee with us. But no one asked me specifically. You know, I'm special. I need to be asked specifically. <laughs> I want a special invitation to things back in those days. Now I barge my way into anything. <clears throat> And this guy, um, we'd go out to coffee with him, and he would say, ask about my day, and I'd tell him, and he'd say, boy, do you see your higher power there? Do you see God in your life? I'd say, no. And he kept saying it over, you know, for weeks and months and years. And finally I saw, I began to see it. I began to see that there, there was something greater than I that was giving me these wonderful gifts of my life and that I was, I was okay because of it. Um, and, and this young man died of the disease of alcoholism, and I always talk about him to honor his memory. Um, I don't think any alcoholic should die in vain, and we've all been touched by some of those who have left us. And so, so that was my gift from Matthew, and he, he thank you, Matt, because he really taught me how, how, to, how to do it and how to look out there and see my higher power. I struggled a lot, and I talk about the struggle of my early sobriety. I did one of these big gigs once a few years ago, and I talked about the, the struggle with sponsorship, and some very wise human being in West Virginia came up to me afterwards and said, you never should be allowed to speak to anybody. You're going to make everybody drink. Oh, to be so powerful. <laughs> I don't think so. But it was a real struggle for me. Sponsorship was a huge struggle for me. Um, when I was started in the Frostburg group, it was uh, there were three women. One of them went out. One of them is still sober but doesn't ever go to meetings, and the other one died in a fire that it was caused by drinking and smoking. And I, I said that for years. That I, of course, I couldn't find a sponsor. If you believe that, that is a bunch of baloney because I could have gone further and wider and found myself a very fine sponsor in those days. But I was special, so I didn't have a very special sponsor in those days. I did work the steps from the very beginning, and I did them kind of half-baked. Um, but I did them because I was too afraid not to do them. I did my fifth step. I, couldn't, I, 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 I had a quasi-sponsor at the time, and I didn't want to do my fifth step with her because I felt she had a big mouth, and it turns out she did. <laughs> And I did it with our local minister, who um, was a perfect person for me to do it with. And, and, it, and it was, like it says, it was a wonderful experience for me. And, and she, and in the process, I 12-stepped her into Al-Anon. So that was good, too. Worked her into Al-Anon, and we got along fine. And she left, you know, it's interesting about that stuff. She left the community a few, several years ago, and I really felt like, because she had my fifth step in her heart, that she took a part of me with her. And, and that was, um, it was very hard for me to have her move. I, I loved her dearly. Um, one of the things I learned, one of the gifts I've gotten in this program was what my, my vocation. I was a retired school teacher and I had opened a little country craft store and I was doing stuff. And one, of the day, so one day I was driving down the road and I had this brilliant idea. I think I'll be a painter. I think I want to learn to paint pretty pictures. And, you know, I, I said to a friend of mine, do you know anybody who teaches painting? And she said, I do. I said, oh, well, I think I'll take painting classes. Um, 
And I was terrified. I can't tell you how terrified. Because I, I was still feeling pretty fat, ugly, and stupid. And I couldn't, um, I couldn't imagine putting something on paper and putting it up and letting other people look at it, that it would be like looking into my soul. And so I thought, the only way I can do this is using a program of Alcoholics Anonymous. The 12 steps will do anything. I know that because I don't drink. And by then, I didn't smoke. So I knew that it really worked for all this stuff. So I started praying about it. I would, go, I would drive down the road to take classes, and I would pray, please, God, make me available to learn. Please, please help me learn. Make me available. I need to be available in my heart. And I, and I started painting, and I'm a painter. And I spent this morning in a painting class. I gave up half of my painting class today for you people, so I hope you know that's a big sacrifice. <laughs> and, and, I, and I learned to paint, and I, and I have a modicum of success as a painter. I sell my work about the state. And, um, and what I've discovered about painting, I'm a watercolorist, is that it is a spiritual journey that when I'm involved with, with, with color and paper and a brush, that my heart and my soul is totally free to be available to learn and to hear and to do. That's really my most meditative state is when I'm doing that. And it's just was a giant gift. And it's the greatest joy of my life. How am I doing? I'm doing good. <laughs> I'm so happy. In my ninth year of sobriety, I hit... Um, I got to, I was sponsoring people. My friends in California used to say, my friend Steve used to say, Susie Cream Cheese, you have no business sponsoring people. You'll make everybody drink. And he was right because I hadn't had good sponsorship. And I was um, struggling during my ninth year. We went on one of these sober trips with all these people. Four different people came up to me not knowing that anybody else had spoken to me during that trip and said, I don't know what's going on in your life, Sue, but if you don't make some changes, you will drink. Four people didn't know the other ones had said it. They didn't even know each other. That's spooky stuff when that happens. But I listened because I had learned. The gift of listening has been one of the greatest gifts of all in these rooms. And I listened to that. And I, I'll t this is another little Dr. Paul story. And so at the end of that trip, Paul used to have an 8 o'clock in the morning attitude adjustment meeting. And, and at these trips. And so I was sitting in the attitude adjustment meeting and just weeping, just crying. Tears were pouring down my face. About 100 people in the room. And at breakfast, I was walking around, and Paul came up to me. He said, wait a minute, come here, come here. I said, what? And he said, what's going on with you? I said, I don't know. He said, well, do something. You know, what kind of... That, that was such a lesson to me, that this guy sits in a crowd of 100 people and looks out there and sees someone hurting and reaches out to them. And the hustle and bustle of leaving town and doing stuff goes over and touches someone's heart. And that was Dr. Paul. So I came home, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I was sitting in a Frostburg meeting, which is also my home group. Kathy already invited you. I'll invite you to another meeting in a minute. Um, and I went, I went home. And I was sitting in a meeting, and a person picked up a 13-year chip that night. And I had nine years, and I, and I looked at that person, and then the person shared. And, man, she knocked my socks off. I mean, she knew the book, and she had the book and the steps, and it was clear it was an integral part of her life. And I went up to her afterwards and said, you don't know me, and I don't know you. I have nine years of sobriety, but would you please be my sponsor? And she said, well... 
Yes, but. You will, I don't care if you have nine days, nine months, nine years. You will do what I ask you to do when I ask you to do it. And we will do, and I will do whatever I ask you to do, and we will do it all together. And then I will be, I would be willing to sponsor you. I said, I will do anything you say. Tell me what to do. And she did. We did. We had, we, we, she is my sponsor today, and she was my sponsor, has been ever since then. And we did the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and she taught me how to do these steps. And she, she said, you will write, and you will study, and you will learn. And I write, and I studied, and I learned. Now, I know this is not what everybody needs, and I don't advocate everybody do this. So please don't come up and give me that. I've heard that before. For, oh, I don't want to write. Fine, don't write. Get, find a sponsor you can work with is the point. The point being, just get someone who can work with you, and you can work with well. But, you know, I had been shopping for a, for a marriage partner, I think, during my earlier sponsorship. I was looking for someone my age, two kids, divorce, da-da-da-da-da-da. Instead of looking for someone who had what I wanted. And when I found that someone who had what I wanted, that worked wonderfully. Now, here's the kick of this one. At that point in time, my sponsor was 29 years old, younger than my youngest kid. And now I'm taking direction from someone 29. Woo! I was willing to do it, though. And it paid off big time. And that was a, just a giant gift to me in these rooms. These steps have been, I can give an hour on the steps in my life and how each one impacts my life and how much they, they have affected the things that I do and what I do and how I do it. They are just absolutely instrumental in how I function on a daily basis. And the days that I'm not tuned in and doing it, the days that I'm not listening or paying attention, at the end of the day, they ain't so hot. And I usually have to make some amends. And I usually need to look out for hungry, angry, lonely, and tired at that point. They're huge gifts. The gifts, I've, you know, you people have taught me. My goal, my, I wanted great sobriety. That was my goal. I wasn't willing to just get by. I wanted really good sobriety, and I still want really good sobriety. I wanted the best I could get. And I think that's part of the reason is because I came in here when I was almost 50 years old. I didn't have a lot of time to waste, so I had to get moving. If I wanted a quality life, you got to get going, I think, at that point. So I got going. Although my friend Chat back there came in about the same time. I don't know if he... <laughs> anyway, I... Um... Where was I going with that thought? I know where I'm going. And you people are the ones who've taught me how to be a better Sue. How to be a sober, better Sue. September 11th. Everybody knows where they were on September 11th. And I was, um, I remember where I was on September 11th. My husband needed to have some surgery here in Hagerstown. Um, and it was imperative that he had it because otherwise he would go blind. This isn't high drama, this is just fact. And we were driving down the road to Hagerstown for the surgery when my daughter, my in-law, called me on the cell phone to tell me what had happened in New York. And we got to Washington County Hospital here and it got him ready for the surgery and they came in and they said, you'll have to go home. This hospital has been cleared. It's, it's, the ORs aren't going to be used because this hospital is a receiving hospital for Camp David and we think something will happen there. You know, the doctor called him and said, don't go. So 
I kept saying, let's go. He kept saying, no. So we didn't go. And I was sitting here, um, I was sitting there, and here I am in Hagerstown. And here's my husband with this thing, and here's 9-11 on the TV. And the world is totally unmanageable. My personal life and the life of the country and everything else. And I, um, I went to the phone, and I picked up the phone, and I called Charlie and Christy, who are sitting here in this room. And I said, you know, when this is over, when Alan has his surgery at the end of the day, can I come to your house? Because I know I need to see, I will need to see a, a friendly face. And I always cry when I tell this story. And, and if, ten minutes later, I look, and coming down the hall are Charlie and Christy, and they sat with me, and they, and they sat and talked to me through that day, and they didn't let me go. They didn't let me out of their sight until we could put Alan in a car and take him back to Garrett County. You people of Alcoholics Anonymous have taught me how to treat other people. You have taught me how to be kind, how to put away myself, and to love other people as much as I can. And I will ever, ever be grateful for that gift and that lesson. Charlie and Christy were just the instruments. It could have been any one of you. But I needed to have that lesson up close and personal. And I truly am grateful for that lesson and for that day with them. So September 11th has a little different meaning in some ways for me than it has the same meanings for all of us. Uh, we have family. I want to talk about my family a little bit. We have kids, six of them. Um, they have never felt the need to go to Al-Anon. They have never felt the need to, to do those things, and therefore it's been a, an interesting road to travel. We now have uh, six kids and seven grandchildren and... I guess five significant others or wives, husbands, whatever. And it has, um, there have been some rough moments with this, with, with the recovery road in my life. I'm a stepmother to two stepdaughters and two stepsons. And I raise boys and I'm not good with girls. And it's really been tough at times. And fortunately, through Alcoholics Anonymous, I've learned to keep my mouth shut. Restraint of pen and tongue, page 91. <laughs> Why that wasn't given to me the first day I came in here, I'll never know. <laughs> but boy, has that one, that's just it. That we were, we, I was at a 10-step meeting last night, and it came up, and I talked about that last night. This summer, um, we don't have, don't plan to stay with us. We don't have any free weekends. There are none. They're all coming. They're coming by the droves, these kids. The teenage kids want to bring their teenage friends, and so we're going to have the four teenagers for a week, two boys and two girls, and we're going to try and keep them out of the woods. I keep saying Alan should just be right in front of them, chainsawing down trees and tell them to haul them away, keep them busy for a week. So, you know, the, the gift of this program is these wonder, these wonderful kids we've got and grandkids. They're just, we were at, we were at, Alan's youngest son got married about three weeks ago in North Carolina and we were down there and oh my gosh, what fun it was and what a gorgeous evening and what a, oh, he, he's 43, his first wedding. We're really glad he got married. I'm really glad he got married. I love his, his bride and, um, we were at this wedding and celebrated their marriage and their life, and there was a lot of booze at that marriage. And we were, and you know, it, it recoil as though from a hot flame. It just is, it isn't there. 
It just was great. And when I came in, I said, I will stop drinking today, but by golly, when one of the kids get married or somebody dies or something bad happens, forget it. That's when you put the AA stuff aside. And what I've learned over the years is I don't have to drink over anything, and I can celebrate life every day of my life, which is what I try and do. Um, in the year 2003, I had a lump on my neck, a little lump. I said to the physical therapist, oh, that must be my cancer growing. And guess what? It was my cancer growing. And by the time I started chemotherapy, it looked like I had grapes growing under my, my neck. I had lymphoma. And I was treated right here in Hagerstown, down the street at the John Marsh Cancer Center. What a lucky community you are to have these. My doctor's here. I'm coming in Monday to see my oncologist. And you're so lucky to have the kind of help you have here in this community. And I looked at it, and I was, I, I, you know, my first reaction to being diagnosed was anger and wrath, and my very quickly followed by what I've learned in these rooms. Why not? Didn't work to say, why me? Why not? I'm not special. It's no different. Everybody has stuff. And I didn't know what to pray for. I was really struggled with what to pray for. And I, 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 we were actually on vacation. We went on vacation the day after I was diagnosed. And um, I would walk along the beach screaming, what am I supposed to say, God? And I couldn't say that will be done. It was very hard because I, I was, I'm, I still have that sick part of my brain that thinks I'm going to die any minute now or something awful is going to happen. And I, and I couldn't say that. But I could say, what am I supposed to pray for? And it came to me that all I had to pray for was hope and strength today. And so that's what I started praying for, hope and strength. And I told my friends that that's all I need, hope and strength, hope and strength. And, and, and I got through the chemo. I was as balder than you were. I was really bald. I was as bald. I didn't have, yeah, you know. I had, I had no hair anywhere. And I, you know, that's the way. And, and, and it posed some problems for people. Some people found it difficult. Um, some people found it hard to be around me. And some people were just lovingly, supportively wonderful to me, particularly um, the, my women, the women of AA in our community. Um, and then came the summer, or that summer, and it was hot. And I was through with treatment, and I had about a sixteenth of an inch of hair on my head. And I couldn't wear that wig one minute more. I just couldn't, and I didn't know what I was going to do about it, and I did. <laughs> so I decided to take it off and stroll into a Friday night AA meeting. <laughs> oh gosh! And the look on their faces was great. <laughs> it was just great—the bald as a billiard ball. It was brown bald now. It wasn't skinhead bald anymore. And there was a guy in the meeting, they, just, they, they kept sneaking looks at me. I could see him looking at me, see him. And I had worn some really fabulous earrings because I figured if I wore great earrings, it would deflect the interest, you know. <laughs> Take them from, and I'm sitting there, and, and this guy's looking at me. He's sitting in the front row, and he's looking at me, and he's, and he's, he finally, at the end of the meeting, he says, nice earrings, Sue. <laughs> and I loved it. Thank you, Bill. I just loved that. Um, and I made it, and I'm fine. And I come into town every three months, and I get checked by my my doc, and I feel great. And I'm and, but and I'm not sure I became a better person because of that, but I I did become, um, you know, that period of time in my life 
was the most spiritually sound period I've ever had in my life, um, which is really too bad that when we're so fearful and so so scared and that that's what, but at least I turned to my higher power, not drinking, so there's a step in the right direction. I'm getting there. Um, and it was also the most creative time. When I got through at the end of the treatment and it came spring and I was going to frame my paintings and I just would paint that winter and throw them in a pile, throw them in a pile. And when I finished, I got them out and I had something like 30 paintings to frame. I've never been that productive in a winter. And it was just, it was, I was really touched by the hand of God during the whole thing. And I'm, and I was grateful. One night coming home from a meeting, I was explaining to my husband how grateful I was. And he said, don't you find anything wrong with having cancer? I said, not tonight. Talk to me tomorrow. I will tomorrow, but not tonight. So that was the deal. I'm, you know, what it's like now, I'm very active in my arts community. I move around it with comfort. I, I do not um, share with people that I'm an AA, to be perfectly honest. I keep my anonymity intact, not out of shame or anything else. I just keep my worlds a little bit separate. Um, I, If people need me, they know where to come. I'll answer the phone any time of the day or night. And I, um, I love... I love meetings, as I said. I go to I go to meetings because I love them. I I have two children. One of them is married and has given me two wonderful grandchildren: a three-year-old girl named Katie, and a little boy, six-year-old Eric. And they are um, they're they're just wonderful. They live up in Massachusetts. I'm going to my family reunion. I, family reunions are big in this part of the world, but they aren't out in Washington State. But I'm going to Spokane, Washington, to my family reunion in two weeks. We're going to we're renting our grandmother's house. I mean, someone my age goes to grandma's house um, for a weekend, and all of my cousins and I are taking our children and our grandchildren there. We did this a few years ago. There will be 35 of us, and I'm in charge of getting the food. I'm going to Costco to get the food. And so the last few days, we've had this little flurry of emails from all the cousins. Because an email went out over the weekend, if you have food or drinking uh, priorities, please let us know. Let Susie know before she gets here and let us know about. Well, it's really amazing as I'm reading this, these emails. I read three of them today. Nobody's talking about food. There's a lot of talk about wine and beer. Everybody has to have their own kind of wine, their own kind of beer. Their own, but nobody cares about the food. I just think it's. A, I thought this family is still just like it used to be. We're moving right along here. My other son is um, lives over in the Eastern Shore, and he, he for years when people have asked me about my kids, I've said, "Well, there's a chair over there for my for my son," and he took the chair a year ago. And I'm just, um, you talk about a gift that, that he has been sober now for a little over a year. I did not expect it. I was, you know, it was funny because he came to our house, he came up for, to our house and he, he wasn't drinking on that trip, which I thought was a little strange, but our kids have been really great about not offending us. They, they drink when they're around our house, but beer and they don't offend us. But he wasn't drinking anything, and so I didn't think anything about it. And then a couple months later, I saw him, and he wasn't drinking then. And then finally, I was talking to him, and he starts talking about, well, if you talk to your higher power, and suddenly I'm getting the talk from him. I'm thinking, 
I said, are you going to meetings? No, I don't go to meetings. <laughs> no, okay. No, it's okay. Then, <laughs> so, so then we went, I went down and I and went over to see him, and he, he obviously was going to meetings and obviously was in the program. And he finally confessed it to us. That he, but, you know, how are you going to confess to me that you're in the program but for fear I will browbeat you to death with AA? So he's, um, it's, that has been just, thank you, God, for the gift. And it's just another gift. It's one big gift after another as far as I'm concerned. And even the cancer and the, the other stuff, my husband and I both had illnesses. And through every one of them, I've learned something positive and good to enrich my life with and hopefully somebody else's. I believe in the third step prayer is absolutely right on when it says take away my difficulties at victory over them. I bear witness to blah, blah. Because if we don't share our, victory, our difficulties with each other, we can't give each other hope. And when I get through something, it gives somebody hope. And when you get through something, it gives me hope. And when you conquer one of your fears, it gives me hope. Or when you come back to meetings, it gives me hope. I came into these rooms absolutely hopeless. And I have hope now um, on pretty much a daily basis and I have for several years. I, um, I told you, 5 o'clock. I didn't come here today for, for me. I was concerned. I don't believe anybody from Western, as I said, Western Maryland has ever been invited to do this. Uh, maybe. I don't know. You guys would know more than me. Um, I came here because I come from a recovering community of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was asked to speak, and I speak on behalf of my community. My community is um, not as big as some of yours, but it's as caring and as loving and as generous and as step-oriented and as book-oriented as any good AA community in this country, I think, or the world. I come from the community of AA. Last night, I went to a meeting, and when I walked out of the meeting, I was um, something was said after the meeting that upset me. And I decided I was upset when I, left, when I got in my car. And I got my car... And, I, and there was something in my windshield, and I went and I picked it off the windshield, and I picked it up, and it's, it was a note, and it says, Thank you for representing the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it's a rose. And the thank you is really to Alcoholics Anonymous for giving me this absolutely incredible life that I never could have designed or written or planned if I tried, it couldn't have done it for the people of this program who have loved me until I could love myself. And there are days I don't love myself. Thank you.